Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that encouraged and supported by your holy word, we may embrace and always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may have heard, or you may be knowledgeable and just know, that a few weeks back was the 60th anniversary of the assassination of the US President John F. Kennedy. Now, I read and listened to some of the commentary about that. It was very interesting. It strikes me that those days back in 1963 were more idealistic than ours. Now, of course, I wasn't there in 63. Some of you were. Perhaps you'll be able to tell me that, that I'm wrong. But listening to some of the speeches that were given by JFK, they used such soaring language and people loved it. He was actually, when he was killed, he was sadly one of the most popular presidents in US history. He spoke in such idealistic terms, I think today people would laugh at it. But they were idealistic enough to be inspired by his speeches Perhaps idealism waxes and wanes through history. I think if that's the case, we're at a bit of a low point at the moment. People are very cynical at this time. One symptom of a cynical age is that people are disappointed in their leaders. Uh, It's been a while since we've had a leader who is or was perceived to be truly inspiring. What we haven't lacked, though, has been plenty of commentary on how bad the leadership is. Well, sad to say, that was also the situation in the days of Micah the prophet. And what was especially sad is that Israel, of all the nations, should have been the ideal. There should have been a reason to be idealistic about Israel because it had been set up by God with his law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and that was meant to enable Israel to be a beacon of righteousness and show the world how good God is. But in Micah's day, Israel's leaders were just a total disappointment. And you can read about this in Micah chapter 3, which is not printed for us today, but it is, of course, in your Bibles, which uh, which you can use there in the pew if you'd like to turn it up. Um, Micah chapter 3, I'll just show you a few brush strokes of the picture that the prophet paints. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he says, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil? See, the task of a leader is to do justice and to defend the weak and destroy the wicked. The leaders were not doing that. Instead, they are exploiting the weak. And the prophet speaks about tearing the skin off of God's people. That is what the leaders were like. And as for the prophets, well, chapter 3, verse 5, I think, is, is darkly amusing. The prophets, it said, proclaim peace when they've got something to eat and they consecrate a war against anyone who won't feed them. These prophets, they make Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice look quite principled. These these men are meant to declare the word of God without fear. And yet 
what they do is they, they say whatever will get them fed. The reformer Martin Luther, while he was still a loyal Catholic back in 1511, before he made his break with the Roman Church, uh, he had an occasion to visit Rome. And knowing that Rome, Luther was a German, as most will know, I think, uh, knowing that Rome was the centre of world Christianity, he expected it to be this wonderful and holy and awe-inspiring place. But when he actually went there, he, he wrote that he was pained by the blasphemy and the immorality that he encountered there. His ideal of Rome was shattered. He he wrote that the closer you get to Rome, the worse the Christians are. Well, that is what Jerusalem was like in the days of Micah. And it's the opposite of the way it should have been. So Micah declared that God was going to judge Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 12 says that Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. It was so rotten it couldn't be retrieved, it had to be levelled. And that's a task that was going to fall to the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, sometime after Micah's days of prophesying. Now at this point, speaking about levelling Jerusalem, Micah sounds a bit like a political radical, doesn't he? He's saying, look, the system is so bad it needs to be demolished. Political radicals over the centuries have shown time and again that they know how to turn the existing order into a heap of rubble. But they've always struggled to build again and to build their ideal society. One great story comes from an unlikely party held in 1970 at the home of the American composer Leonard Bernstein. Uh, The Black Panthers were a radical black movement and they were going to attempt a revolution. These Black Panthers were invited to the home of Bernstein and his wife uh, with the cream of New York society. And there was a journalist there who who wrote down uh, some of the conversations. Bernstein asked the Black Panther field marshal, Don Cox, what the plan was. Cox said, Lenny... You can't blueprint the future. To which Bernstein said, you mean you're going to wing it? See, that's what radicals have always had to do. Turning the existing order into a heap of rubble, that's the easy part. But to build things is so difficult. I mean, to build things with bricks and mortar is difficult enough. But to build a community, to build a society with the crooked timber of mankind, well, that is just so hard. And that is what makes the vision of Micah in chapter 4 so remarkable. Because it's a vision of something good and perfect and right and peaceful being built on the heap of rubble. So the good news from Micah is that although Jerusalem is to be judged, and that would no doubt be horrible, the ideal Jerusalem is still destined to be achieved. Chapter 4, verse 1, shows us that the world will look again to Jerusalem. Let's read those words of the vision there. 
chapter 4, verse 1, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. And we read there about how people would be eager to go and learn from the God of Jacob. It's always nice, isn't it, to see someone who's eager to learn. A person who is eager to learn is destined to go far. Imagine a world where people were eager to learn how to live from the God who made us. That that would be a good world, wouldn't it? Are you eager to learn God's ways? What would it mean for you to be eager to learn God's ways? Uh, one, one suggestion is to, to pray that collect every single day and to open the Bible and read it. Wow, that, that, would, be, that would be the deed of someone who was eager to learn God's ways. Well, the vision of this new world order continues in verse 3, where we see that there will be true peace. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes. They will beat their swords into plowshares. True peace is when disputes are truly settled. And you can, you can tell that disputes are truly settled when the nations demilitarize. That's what this verse is about, isn't it? They turn their weapons of war into tools that they could use in a flourishing peacetime. The result is the peace of verse 4. Everyone will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree. Uh, And that verse there, uh, which comes up a number of times during the Old Testament, is the Hebrew equivalent of the great Australian dream in which everybody has their own quarter-acre block and they sit on the back veranda watching the kids swim in the swimming pool. But it's clear, isn't it, that, that the peace and the prosperity of which the prophet speaks here, it really belongs to another world, doesn't it? This world in which disputes are truly settled so that the weapons of war are no longer required and everyone enjoys prosperity, that would require a divine intervention, wouldn't it? Only Yahweh can achieve it. And I think that's why in verse 5 the prophet speaks to his contemporaries and he says, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. Because we know that only Yahweh, the creator, could bring about a transformation like this. Uh, And the hopes of the ancient people were not disappointed, were, were they? That's what we remember at this time of year. Because at this time of year, we remember that God did send his son into the world who would be the agent of transformation. God's son, Jesus, would be God's agent to restore the moral authority of Jerusalem so that the world would stream to Jerusalem to learn from the one true God how to live and that the Prince of Peace would settle all disputes and grudges so finally 
that an everlasting peace could be established. Now, certainly there is no human being and there is no human movement in history that could achieve these things apart from Jesus. Now, of course, those who are unbelievers, who who don't believe in Jesus Christ, they would say that he's also not the solution, that he was just a man. But I think even even those who, who believe that they too would agree that no other, no other human has ever arisen with a solution to the world's problems which offers to be as complete uh, as what Jesus uh, promises to achieve here in Micah chapter 4. Jesus is the only human who could possibly be relied on to achieve this because he is the Prince of Peace. And from where we stand, because we of course are on the other side from Micah, of the first coming of Christ, he was maybe 700 years before the first coming of Christ, we're 2,000 years after. And we can see that the Prince of Peace has begun to build Micah's vision. Uh, If we think about the gospel spreading across the world over the last 2,000 years, well, surely that's a fulfilment of the law going out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, There are wonderful examples of how the gospel has brought peace. Uh, For example, to the the bloodthirsty tribe in Ecuador where Jim Elliot and his friends famously went in the 1950s. 30 years later, so many of them had become Christians uh, and they were no longer killing each other with uh, with these feuds. But the fulfilment so far is, is, is painfully partial, isn't it? Uh, there can be no doubt that the fullness of Micah's vision is not to be realised until the new creation and it's, it's very, very partial so far. The final thing I want to show you this morning is that the pathway to that new world order is through grief and suffering. That's what we see in the second half of chapter 4. See how it says there in verse 6 that God is going to assemble the exiles and gather those that he brought to grief? At this point, the exile to Babylon was still in the future. Jerusalem was going to be sacked by the Babylonians. The people would be taken into captivity. And then after that, God would redeem them from their enemies. Verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. So it was an interesting kind of hope that the prophet was holding out to the people, wasn't it? It was hope, but it was hope through suffering. It was hope that was going to be come through Pain which would be like the labour pains of of a woman in childbirth. And it seems to me that this is the pattern for the church right through, right through to the end it's going to be this way. I mean, have a look at verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. Now, that was said about the ancient Jerusalem, but that's a lot like the current condition of the church, isn't it? With many eyes of of people gloating at the parlous state that the church seems to be in. But, verse 12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron 
I will give you hooves of bronze and you will break to pieces many nations. I don't think the imagery here is of a military triumph. I don't think we're going to beat them in a fight. But I think that God is going to make his people so tough and so hardy that the gloaters will just wear themselves out trying to destroy us. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now that, that unfortunately doesn't sound like we're going to have an easy life as the church, does it? It sounds like we're going to be under attack. But Jesus is more powerful than the gates of hell. The great verse in that first hymn we sang about how God with, will defend us. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. So don't give up on Jesus' ideals. We can be idealists, just not naive ones. There is a world transformation underway and it will succeed. But that transformation, it has to be ruled from start to finish by the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? He is the only one who can do it. I wish that the transformation were not so painfully partial at this point. Maybe that's because I would just like to have an easy life. But I am completely convinced that Jesus has done and will do everything that is necessary to bring about his perfect vision. Even though for us along the way we're going to have to be tough uh, as we withstand with Jesus' help whatever might be unleashed from the gates of hell against us. So as others might walk in the name of their gods or their ideals or their pipe dreams, let us walk in the name of the Lord our God, the Father of Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Amen. Gracious Father, we praise you because we know Uh, that the Prince of Peace will complete the world transformation that he unleashed when he died and rose for us. Heavenly Father, we know that you call us to to suffer in this uh, and to suffer through the the difficulties that will be uh, going to happen uh, as your program comes towards its conclusion. Father, please help us to work and to pray hard Uh, And, Father, please give us hope and confidence that you will bring to fruition your wonderful plan of world transformation. In Jesus' name, amen.